On June 9th of 1979, families and friends gathered at Luna Park in Sydney, Australia to spend a fun-filled evening together. A group of young boys along with a father and his two sons were some of almost 30 people who climbed aboard the ride known as the Ghost Train. The fun and excitement quickly turned to terror when a fire broke out on the train and seven of the passengers did not escape the blaze. Was it an accident or was it arson? This is a story of the ghost train fire at Luna Park. I'm Ashton and welcome to The Haunted Corner. everyone. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. Today, I have a rough story to tell you. You may have seen the documentary about this event on Netflix recently. It's called Exposed, The Ghost Train Fire. I highly recommend watching it if you haven't. I got a lot of information about this case from that documentary. I knew about this case before then, but I had never seen that documentary and it's a lot this case is super sad and that's all i'm gonna say let's get into it a little background information on luna park there were four of these amusement parks built in australia the one that we're discussing today is the one located in sydney one of two parks that are still open today Luna Park Sydney was built in 1935. The park has a very um, unique looking exterior. You walk through a giant face to enter the park and I hate it. The face was designed based on illustrations of Old King Cole and it's the worst. I'll post a lot of pictures for you to check out on the blog. It's a lot. When Luna Park opened, it pretty much had immediate success with long queues waiting out front. During World War II, the park was a magnet for servicemen who would visit in their free time. During this time, the external park lights would be browned out to protect from sneak attacks from enemies. Non-essential electricity and neon lights were turned off, which I thought was pretty interesting. Luna Park underwent many changes throughout the years. Ownership changed hands a couple times. The face at the entrance had to be redesigned. New rides and attractions were added, and eventually the park was open year-round, which left little time for regular maintenance to be performed on the rides. There were a few incidents at the park throughout time, a couple of which occurred on the Big Dipper ride, which was a large roller coaster on the property. Two deaths reportedly happened on the ride, and in April of 1979, 13 people were injured when a steel runner came loose, causing one of the three trains to stop on the tracks. Another train was unable to stop and rammed the other train from behind, causing the injuries. Things were a little rough at the park, but still it remained a popular destination for people of all ages. So it didn't come as a huge surprise when Luna Park was buzzing on June 9th of 1979. Among the crowd was a group of boys from Waverly College, including Jason Holman, Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll, Michael Johnson, and Seamus Rahili. 
Jason, was in seventh grade at the time, and the other boys were in eighth grade. It was a pretty special night for the boys because it was the first time they were allowed to go to the park at night by themselves. They had to persuade their parents to let them go, but after lots of convincing, their parents finally agreed. Part of the agreement, though, was that they had to go to Mass before going to the park. So they did, and when Mass was over, they hopped on a bus, then caught the ferry over to Luna Park. Also in attendance that night were John and Jenny Godson, along with their two sons, Damien and Craig. The family was on vacation. They had saved and planned the trip for a while. It was the boys' first trip to Sydney. They planned on having a fun family night out together at the park. Damien was six years old at the time, and Craig was four. When the family arrived at the park, they began riding all the rides that they could. Damien and Craig were having a blast, like any kid would be at an amusement park. As it started to get late, the boys were getting tired. They had enough tickets to ride one more ride, so Jenny asked the boys which was their favorite. The boys both exclaimed that it was the ghost train. Jenny, at that time, had a craving for ice cream and asked the boys if they'd like some too. John took Damien and Craig to hop on the ghost train for one more ride while Jenny went to get the ice cream. At the same time, in another part of the park, the Waverly boys, Jason, Jonathan, Richard, Michael, and Seamus, were trying to get on another ride. But as they were up next to get on, the ride closed. So, needing a new plan, one of the boys shouted, Ghost Train! And they all headed over to the ride as well. A little bit about the Ghost Train. The ride was one of the most popular attractions in the park. You'd enter the ride on a train through a door labeled Hell's Doorway, it was a dark, loud, and chaotic trip along a 180-meter electric track full of hairpin turns, promising to deliver the creepiest, spine-tingling ride of your life. It was a haunted train ride, basically. There were skeletons, dragons, and even Dracula featured on the ride. At one point, the train takes passengers outside into a caged area before going into another building with a fake fireplace equipped with pretend flames. And for most of the two and a half minute ride, it was completely dark. Around 10 o'clock p.m., Jason, Jonathan, Richard, Michael, and Seamus, along with John, Damien, and Craig, waited in line before having their tickets punched by the man who was operating the ghost train, a man named Albert Bessel. While this was occurring, passengers on the ghost train noticed something strange on their favorite ride. In the scene with the fake fireplace, it appeared that the one's fake flames were real on this night. The flames were usually produced by a light fan and some red and orange fabric to give the appearance of flames. But on this night, as the train car passed, one of the passengers, a woman named Sue Manning, could feel the heat coming from what appeared to be real flames in the fireplace. Her friend told her not to be silly. It couldn't be real flames, right? Maybe they had added real flames as a new effect? They didn't really think anything of it, so they exited the ride. It was around this time that Jenny Godson was picking up the ice cream snack that she had craved. She was anxious to meet up with John, Craig, and Damien so they could go on the ghost train together as a family. She thought they were all going to go on the ride together, but they were already in line and ready to get on by that point. So John, Craig, and Damien got on the ride. Passengers who were in the cars behind them recall smelling smoke immediately on the ride. And as the train continued along the track, flames began to appear. 
And that's when they started to realize that this wasn't part of the ride. They thought about getting off the ride as it went to the outside fenced in area, but there was no way out. The train is still continuing along the track. So they had no choice but to go into the building with the fake fireplace, which by that point was a complete inferno. The passengers behind John, Craig, and Damien got out of their cars and watched them head towards the flames. Jason and his friends were next in line. Jonathan and Richard got in one car. Michael and Seamus got in another car. And Jason got in his own car. Right at that time, the other passengers who were able to escape the flames came out and were screaming for the operator to stop the ride, exclaiming that there was a fire. It's chaos. People are screaming. The operator doesn't really know what to do or if he should believe them. The ride continues to operate. The car carrying Jonathan and Richard went through the doorway. Jason's car is up next. And just as his car reaches the doorway, one of the operators grabs Jason, picks him up out of the car, and sets him down over the railing. Jason, of course, was confused and angry at the time, not knowing that the man had just saved his life. Jenny, with ice cream in hand, watched as the ride went up in flames. And just then, the door of the ride opened and the train came back out on the other side. This time, the train was empty and on fire. The employees, including Tony Jacobs, who was one of the ride operators, jumped into action. Realizing that there were people still inside, Tony ran into the building, followed by another employee named Frank Boitano. The smoke was so thick, people were screaming, the cars were piling up. Somehow, Tony was able to find several people and lead them to safety before going back in. As he made his way once again through the flames, he came upon John Godson, who was huddled with his two sons, Damien and Craig. Despite trying, Tony was unable to reach them. The smoke overtook him and he was forced to leave. Other employees tried to use fire extinguishers to battle the blaze, but they were useless. Witnesses reported hearing explosions and seeing flames shooting from the ride. The fire was completely out of control by the time the fire department arrived. Firefighters immediately faced challenges when they got to Luna Park. There was very little information about if anyone was inside and how many people were unaccounted for. Not only did the hoses not reach the ride, there was no water pressure coming from the hoses at Luna Park, and the firefighters had to pump water from the harbor to use to battle the flames. But there was little they could do to save those who were still inside the ride. Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll, Michael Johnson, and Seamus Rahili, along with John Godson and his two sons, Damien and Craig, all perished in the fire. Jason Holman lost four of his good friends that night, and Jenny Godson lost her entire family in an instance. I cannot imagine. You go to get ice cream for your family to enjoy together, you turn around, and they're just gone. The families of Jonathan, Richard, Michael, and Seamus were notified and forced to begin the unimaginable process of grieving the loss of their sons. Jason, the only survivor of his friend group, had to be sedated following the fire because he was in such shock. A funeral was held for the four boys at St. Mary's Cathedral, and a joint funeral was held for John, Damien, and Craig as well. The park was immediately closed following the fire for a federal investigation. 
By 3 o'clock the next day, police announced that they believed an electrical fire caused by faulty wiring was responsible for the blaze, which was pretty quick for the time. The families of the victims at the time believed what the police said, though. I mean, what choice did they really have? It was an electrical fire. Okay. Police didn't believe that the fire had been set intentionally. They claimed it was an accident. But some people started to see red flags immediately, mainly with the timeline of events after the fire. On the night of the fire, the blaze was extinguished around midnight. By 2.30 a.m., six of the bodies had been removed. At 3.40 a.m., a crane arrived on the scene. At 5.40 a.m., the seventh body was removed. The scene was not preserved, though. A cleanup was pretty much immediately put into place. They had a crew of people in there digging through everything, and any evidence that could have been found was lost. Doug Knight, remember that name, he was the detective in charge at the time. He should have secured the scene, but he was satisfied that the fire was the result of an electrical fault. By early the next day, in 1979, even today, that's not enough time to gather all the facts and evidence needed to make that determination. Detective Knight also released a written statement the next day claiming four independent witnesses stated that they saw flames and sparks coming from an archway of the ghost train building in the vicinity of the roof and the electrical wiring system shortly before the start of the main fire. Which is interesting because none of the witnesses who have gone on record have ever said that. No one has ever backed that statement up. So who were these witnesses? And if, like the police said, it was a faulty electrical wire, then why was the train still running? Why were the train cars emerging from the fire running perfectly? If this was the case, why were the lights still working in the ghost train? Doesn't make sense. There were two fuse boxes located within the ghost train, the northern fuse box and the southern fuse box. The northern fuse box was still fully operational following the fire. The southern fuse box is where police said the fire started. But according to witnesses, the flames were first seen near the imitation fire and not at the fuse box. Footage of the southern fuse box the next day shows that it was still pretty much intact. It was one of the only things still standing at the site. So how is it possible that the fire started at that fuse box, as police claimed. During the coroner's inquest in August of 1979, the coroner stated that the likeliest cause of the fire was that someone threw a lit cigarette onto a pile of flammable litter, which caused the blaze, which did not sit right with the witnesses and the victims' families at all. Anthony Stokes, a senior lecturer in electrical engineering at Sydney University, announced that there had been no evidence found to support the idea that an electrical fire started the ghost train fire either. So there goes that. Witnesses from the ghost train fire were asked to attend the inquest, but were never called to give evidence. Not a single question regarding arson or possible arson was asked despite having a witness who told police that he smelled kerosene at the time of the fire inside the room with the fake fireplace in it. Police disregarded his statement, and he was never called at the inquest. He wasn't the only person who smelled kerosene in the ride that night either. One of the employees also smelled it. And get ready for more shady 
things surrounding the witnesses. Another witness who wasn't called at the time of the inquest recalled overhearing a group of five men talking about kerosene and matches on the night of the fire. The witness was a man named Les Dowd. He was living at a youth refuge for the time. He, along with some of the other youths, had received free tickets to go to Luna Park that night. They all gave the same story to the woman who ran the youth refuge named Julie when they returned that night. They all claimed that they had overheard a group of men talking about spreading kerosene on the floor of the ghost train and setting it on fire. Police interviewed Les and the others. In his statement, Les said that he saw the group huddled together near the magic shop just before the fire. One of the men was described as being around 18 years old, 5'10", with blonde, straight, shoulder-length hair. He was skinny with a fair complexion. He was wearing light blue jeans, a dark jacket, and boots. He had a tattoo on his right ear. His left ear was pierced. The other four were described as 16 to 17 years old. They all had earrings in their left ears. He said, quote, they were all huddled together. He was looking at the ghost train and I was about two feet away from him. And I heard them say, I spread the kerosene and I lit it with a match. Another one said, you're a fool for doing it before they ran towards the exit. End quote. It seemed that everyone believed less. Police initially went looking for the suspects. And... They brought Les back in for another interview by the middle of the next day. His second interview was not the same as the first one. The mood reportedly had completely shifted and the police pressured him to change his statement about what had happened that night. He said, the lot of it isn't true. So he basically told them that he had made it all up. Julie, who was also at the interview, felt like he was being led to say what the police wanted him to say. His first statement was thrown out and Les was charged for lying to the police and for being a public nuisance. He was ordered to pay a fine and was on probation. Police were critical of Les, calling him a liar, saying he exaggerated and was inconsistent with his statements. They also said that they didn't bully or pressure him into changing his statement. Shocker. But Les wasn't the only person who overheard the men that night. Another teen named Tina corroborated his story. She remembered overhearing the men discussing the kerosene and matches and also saying, you shouldn't have done that and let's split. So two teens sharing the same story and no one looked into it. They basically were just called liars and dismissed. But what no one knew at the time, and they should have, is that there were several other witnesses who could back up Les and Tina's stories. Several other people were interviewed at the Sydney police station following the fire. One of them was Albert Bessel, the ghost train operator on the night of the fire. According to his police statement, Albert remembered that approximately 10 minutes before the fire began that night, he saw a group of people who he would describe as bikies entering the ride. One of the men was about five foot ten with a long beard. He remembered being a little bit nervous as the group went into the ride, but he wasn't able to go check on them while they were on the train. About ten minutes later, the ride was engulfed in flames. Alan Chapel was another witness from the evening who gave his statement to police the next day. 
He worked at the park at the time, and he recalled coming into contact with a group of youths after he saw one of them carrying a beer. He described one of them as about 20 years old, five foot eight to five foot ten, with shoulder length, blonde hair, a mustache, and a skinny build. The man was with several others outside the ghost train before the fire. Another witness was Frank Boitano, who was the employee who first entered the ride with Tony when the fire started. Well, in his statement, Frank claimed he saw a bikey outside the ride at the time of the fire, too. He recalls one man in particular who was in the line and had a very long beard. One of the other witnesses was a woman named Elena who was on the ride that night. In her statement, she said that she saw a group of bikies as well who exited the ride before she got on. She described the men as having long hair and beards, wearing knee-high boots, long coats, and drinking cans of beer. Police told her that they could not prove the bikies lit the fire and that she should forget it. They then left that part of her statement out of it. So awesome. Elena's husband, Frank, also gave a statement to police saying the same as his wife, that they had seen a group of people dressed similarly to the others, bikies as they called them. But of course, his statement doesn't say anything about seeing them either. All of that information was left out of his statement. In total, seven people reported the same thing from the night of the fire. Seven. Not one person who maybe misheard something that someone said. No, seven people who saw the same thing and heard the same thing. Three of these people weren't included at the coroner's inquest. The other four were, but they weren't asked anything about the bikies that they saw that night. Despite all of this, Doug Knight insisted that there were no suspicious circumstances surrounding the fire. He even put a statement out five days after the fire, seeking further evidence supporting the accident theory, just completely ignoring these witnesses' statements altogether. But why? Why, when so many things point to arson, were these witnesses' statements not at all at least looked into? It can't be a coincidence, even if it was an accident. The point of the investigation is to find out what actually happened. <laughs> this makes me so angry. In 1980, Australian Amusements Associates won the lease and took over administration of the Luna Park site in 1981. An auction was held to sell everything in the property, the rides, the games, Everything, everything that wasn't sold with the exception of a few buildings was bulldozed and burned. The park was rebuilt and named Harborside Amusement Park. There was a dispute between the owners that forbid them from using the name Luna Park until later that year. The park changed hands, sat empty, and was eventually restored beginning in 2004. Following the pandemic, the park added nine new rides, which you can still ride to this day. All right, so here's where things get a little more shady. Stay with me. There's a lot of names in this next section. Back to Doug Knight. Allegedly, according to many who knew him, he was a fixer, a quid man, someone who could make things disappear within the legal system. He was known to change and delete evidence. He was friends with some less than admirable people, including a man named Jack Rooklyn. Jack Rooklyn had some links to organized crime. He had reportedly offered Doug Knight a job and was also apparently paying him off, along with another man named Bill Allen. 
Bill Allen was a well-known police officer who was found guilty of bribing a junior officer, among many other things. Guess who arrived on scene of the ghost train fire the morning after, along with Doug Knight? That's right. Bill Allen. Cool, 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 cool. Up next on the le- uh, the list of just the worst people, Abe Saffron. He was well-known for his shady deals in the bars, nightclubs, and strip clubs that he owned. He allegedly had ways of getting out of trouble. He had friends in high places. Following the ghost train fire, Abe was connected to seven suspicious fires. He had a financial connection to most of the buildings involved in these arsons, and there were rumors swirling that Abe wanted control of the lease to Luna Park. Following the fire, Hal and Cole Goldstein won the rights to the lease of Luna Park under the Australian Amusements Associates Company. And wouldn't you know it, Hal and Cole had a cousin. That cousin was Abe Saffron. Abe's nephew, Sam Cowper, was in control of the finances for the park and also for the Saffron Trust. Abe had installed several of his video games in Luna Parks. This is a mess. But wait... There's more. Remember Bill Allen and Jack Rooklyn from earlier? According to witnesses, they were spotted on more than one occasion with Abe Saffron. This goes all the way to the top. The allegation is that Abe Saffron wanted control of the lease of Luna Park. He enlisted the help of a group of bikies to start the fire that night, and he had help covering it up after. In 1986, the National Crime Authority was investigating the fire and the possibility that a group of bikies who were involved in another fire in Sydney were also involved in the ghost train fire. They weren't able to uncover any evidence that a group of bikies started the fire, but it did uncover the fact that a group of bikies did ride the ghost train that night and that it was just never followed up on. The investigation was categorized as as grossly inadequate, and after six years, the chances of identifying that group of people were really low. The NCA report also said that there was no evidence that the inadequacy of the investigation was due to police dishonesty or corruption, and that there was no evidence that Abe Saffron was trying to get control of the lease. Right. But in 2007, Abe Saffron's niece claimed her uncle was behind the fire, but that he hadn't expected anyone to die in the blaze. However, she later denied making the statement. Abe Saffron died in 2006 and Doug Knight died in 2008. The true cause of the ghost fire still hasn't been uncovered. A $1 million reward was announced in 2021 as part of a renewed appeal to get the community to come forward with any fresh and compelling information regarding the fire. A memorial park was opened at Lavender Bay by North Sydney Council on August 25, 2007, and a bronze sculpture was dedicated to the victims. John Godson, Craig Godson, Damian Godson, Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll, Michael Johnson, and Seamus Rahili. The two survivors of the fire, Jenny Godson and Jason Holman, bonded over their grief and became very close over time. Jenny said of her relationship with Jason, quote, we're very close. It's like there's some kind of web that joins us together, end quote. And that is the story of the ghost train fire at Luna Park. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be linked to in the show notes. They're available on the blog post at www.thehauntedcorner.com. 
check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday. If you want access to bonus content and you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to Patreon. There's one regular feed episode per week and one Patreon exclusive episode per week. So if you'd like to support the show and get early and ad free access to the regular episodes plus bonus content, head over to patreon.com forward slash the haunted corner to join now. Your support means the world to me and it helps the show continue. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Bye.